0: Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast. We're back for another week of conversations with experts and practitioners on the topic of a circular economy. I'm Seb, your host, and today my co-host is Pippa Shuley. Welcome, Pippa. Hi, Seb. Nice to be here. Um, what
1: are we going to be hearing about in today's episode? So today we're talking about chemistry, which you have assured me is not a specialist subject. So we're looking at sort of the materials that are part of the circular economy, Right.
0: I mean, when, when I assured you that, Pippa, the only thing I can tell you is that I feel like if I can understand this, then you can certainly understand this. And probably most of the people listening to this podcast can understand it.
1: Fantastic. So who are we going to hear from today?
0: So this conversation, is, we actually recorded this conversation um, in the summer of 2021. Um, it featured or a shorter version of it, it featured as part of the Foundation Summit um, it's with um, Alicia Gamalevich, who in many ways is a leading thinker, not only on the circular economy, but on material science, as you put it. She co-founded an institution um, called Materium, which looks at the kind of future of materials. Um, and she's an academic in that space. Um, a truly uh, excellent explainer and storyteller of the potential and possibility of a material palette that's fit for the long term and for a circular economy.
1: Amazing. We're also going to hear something about kind of the potential of AI and how that can assist as well and how to scale that biomaterial, which is, I think, where there's a lot of potential for revolutionising the system, right?
0: So Alicia makes that connection between technology and uh, new kind of data capabilities and some of the materials that she's interested in. And I think on scale... She is one of my favourite people to speak to on scale, uh, and indeed, she's in. I'm in conversation with her in this conversation because one of the things she says that has always stuck with me, and I think I've, if anyone listens to me regularly, they've heard me use this example before. But that often we say there's too much plastic, for instance, in the world. She makes the point that actually there's about a, like a, there's a thousand times more chitin, which is a kind of natural occurring material in the economy, and her point there is to say that. Actually, scale isn't necessarily the problem of our material palette today. It's fitness in, in society and in the environment.
1: So it's look, looking at what is the right material to use for the different case studies. Exactly. Should we have a listen? I think so. Let's go.
0: Okay, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us and making time to have this conversation. You're founder of an organization called Materium. Can you tell me, what does Materium do?
2: Sure. Well, thank you for having me. So Materium is an open data commons, specifically to provide data on material processes and properties. And those materials are made from abundant sources of natural biomass. So that's primarily what we're, we're all about, is providing that open data layer to accelerate material um, commercialization for SMEs, for entrepreneurs, to better get them to market faster and lower those, those barriers to entry. The other aspects of what we do are we're developing an autonomous uh, platform together with our our partner Superlabs and that will be an AI driven materials optimization engine. So basically we're we're providing a service where people can actually optimize materials towards a certain product niche through experimentation and um, that will all be enhanced by by artificial intelligence um, modeling. And then the, the last piece of the puzzle, which we're really um, focused on is when you imagine those materials being commercialized, it's super important to be able to understand how you can source biomass in a, in a regenerative way so that we don't overextract any given source ecosystem. And so we're developing knowledge and tools for biomass sourcing um, to encourage and, and help those regenerative supply chains to take, to, to, to start to develop.
0: In some ways, materials are kind of an unthought-about part of our economy in a weird way. Like, obviously, I'm interacting with a whole host of materials right now, and all of us are in our daily lives. Is some of the impetus behind Materium that fact that actually the world of materials is slightly unexplored
2: I think that's true. And it's something that we've lost touch with in terms of being uh, really having a deep knowledge and understanding about, um, about the material world that we inhabit and, and, um, consume in every, every day. And that's a, a large impetus and motivation behind material, uh, Materium is to open up access to that knowledge and specifically through the lens of biomaterials, bioplastics, biocomposites. These are actually with kind of with chemistry methods that are very accessible, we use life-friendly chemistry methods. This actually enables people to participate in ways that, that previously is, is really out of the realm of possibility for, for, for people. So unless you're a polymer chemist or, um, or a material scientist, you never really get in touch with material development where we're trying to open that up to more people in more places. And we think that will actually drive innovation as well, commercial innovation.
0: And there's, this, there's a focus on biomaterials. What is it that's exciting about the idea of biomaterials? I guess you tapped into it a little bit just now, but why the focus on biomaterials?
2: Yes, well, the potential of biomaterials is massive when you look actually at just the volume of biopolymers that are in flow in the global biosphere that compose and make up the incredible uh, material production that the natural world um, is, is, is made out of. And so, for instance, you can look at um, the biopolymer chitin, which is the uh, it composes the exoskeletons of insects, the crustacean shells, as well as the cell walls of fungi. Um, it's an incredible biopolymer that's so abundant. It's about 100 billion tons in flow in the biosphere annually. And that's actually the amount of chitin produced in one year is equivalent to greater than 300 years of the current worldwide plastics production. So it just shows the kind of scale of materials that we could actually be building with and developing. And that's not even mentioning cellulose. So cellulose is two teratons per year. Which is orders of magnitude, um, higher. And so that why I, why I mentioned that is that you have to put our production of petrochemical plastics in context and, and that is minuscule. We're, we're producing about. Over 300 million tons um, per year of petrochemical plastics, which is incredibly problematic when they bioaccumulate um, and are in our drinking water and uh, and uh, and causing problems for for other organisms. But um, it shows that it's not necessarily the the material world that we're we're part of, it's what what that's composed of, what the actual building blocks we're using. And so substituting those building blocks, I think, will have an enormous potential for us to have build habitat products, et cetera, that are fundamentally regenerative. So this is not to say that biomaterials need to compose everything in our economy, but where the real opportunity lies is in fast moving consumer goods where you've got high volume and it's the throughput is really fast and you need to um, therefore grapple with the fact that there's going to be leakage. It's incredibly difficult to design that out. And so that's where it's really important to look at using bio-based building blocks that are effective after end of life, no matter where they, they, they go. So you can have small amounts of leakage, depending on the quantity and volume, that are regenerative and not necessarily detrimental. And that's where I think by the biomaterial economy is specifically um, suited to that, that sector. The other aspect as well is that we're looking at is that biomaterials can be actually quite high performance and can take on product niches that currently technical materials occupy. And so that's something that is very much a research frontier that we are, are want to be part of. Um, for instance, you know, the the properties of of spider silk are incredible, pound for pound stronger than steel, for instance. And that kind of engineering of materials is very much in development right now. And it's very exciting to push the boundaries of how far we can use these biopolymer building blocks that are super abundant, but then push their performance by mimicking the way that the natural world works. Um, in terms of composing materials, uh, not with toxic chemicals and high heat and pressure, but rather with structure at micro and nano scales.
0: I always, I really like it when you you give that fact about chitin, Alicia because I quote that quite often. So whenever I hear you say it, I sort of just I'm getting it right. And I think what I, what it illustrates really powerfully is this notion that very often our response to the challenges we see is to do less, is to have less. And that example and the point about being inspired by natural systems emphasises the fact that we can have abundance um, if the building blocks are right, if the principles are right, if the design is right. Um, and I guess like we're getting into it already, but it's worthwhile making maybe the, the uh, connection a bit more explicit. In your view, how does this kind of materials innovation space contribute to a circular economy?
2: So the importance of of regenerative materials for the circular economy is really, it's the starting point for for everything um, when you think about product life cycles. And so if you get materials right in terms of making sure that the building blocks and that the way they're composed and um, fit together Make sure that they can go back into natural systems as productive nutrients after end of life. That means that that entire product can be thought of as regenerative. Now, there's lots of steps along the way, but it's really, really important to get that foundation right. So I see Materium and what we're doing and providing that layer of information as providing that kind of that paint box, that, that palette for what you want to compose for products in circulation everywhere. And as soon as we, we get the materials right and the chemistry right, we're well along the way to make sure that any product we make goes back into a cycle in, in a way that's, that's um, not just zero impact, but actually has a positive impact on any, kind of, any source ecosystem that's actually supporting our, our, uh, our productive economy.
0: What's your view on how this scales? I mean, it's quite easy to get excited about this area and actually if, if anyone has been watching their eyes have been open to the world of biomaterials they might be quite excited it, it because we know so little about how our current materials have come into use i guess it, it, it's it's not something that we naturally understand and there must be some barriers to that as well so what what's the how do we get these this sort of research level materials you're looking at now to a place where they're as abundant as some of the materials that we're very familiar with as today
2: It really requires changing our lens on what scale means. So in today's world, we're very familiar with the concept of scale being associated with centralized mass manufacturing. So we produce a lot of things in one location and then export it globally. And that's something that doesn't work with a biomaterial economy and biomaterial supply chains, because A, there's a lot of secondary and, and and third generation biomass that is highly distributed. So think of food waste, for instance, or agricultural byproducts. That's something that's very difficult to centralize and, and produce from. And you actually risk overextracting any given source ecosystem if you try and scale up in any one location in a traditional mass manufacturing sense. The that we need to think about is scaling horizontally. So actually we want to scale by propagating these solutions at local and regional scales. So if you imagine, again, being nature inspired, we're talking about cycling nutrients, cycling materials at local and regional scales where the intelligence, the knowledge, the understanding of what's available and therefore the rate of nutrient return that's necessary to keep the system regenerative that's built in to the system. And so we see Materium and the kind of the sea change we want to inspire as being the information layer that allows people everywhere at small and medium scales to be able to adopt new materials, commercialize them and enter into um, the market. Now, that's not to say that large companies are somehow not part of that potential vision. It's just that we have to rethink the way supply chains operate. So you may have global brands, but the way in which they're sourcing nutrients may actually be um, more regionalized. Um, and the great thing about working with the palette of building blocks that we talk about, so the biopolymers like chitin and cellulose and starch and, um, and seaweed biopolymers, for instance, all of these amazing building blocks, they actually are repeated Across biomes everywhere, and so even though you may be sourcing from different, slightly different uh, uh, sources of biomass depending on location, the building blocks themselves are, are quite um, are, are quite sourceable everywhere, and so it's something where we can share knowledge across uh, biomes, and we can share knowledge across these kind of these more regionalized supply chains. So that the knowledge is digital, but the the materials cycle at local and regional levels
0: and what i what's really interesting about that story is in many ways, what could be viewed as a material story is really a system story, like the material innovation is a lens into redesigning the system they're the building blocks of the system, but you know you're beginning to talk about well the supply chains the 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 scale, how it works um toggling between that global and local view and I guess to that end, my final question would be, are there any risks to this kind of innovation, or at least um that kind of drive to get other people involved in this kind of innovation do we need to be thoughtful about what we kind of celebrate in this uh, materials innovation space
2: well certainly in the in the biomaterial space it's very very important to look for distributed, abundant sources of biomass that don't overextract any source ecosystem or compete with arable land for food. So there's a lot of bioplastics on the market now that are for first-generation biomass, which is, for instance, um, corn or soy crops. And that is very problematic from a systems perspective um, for for competition for for land for food as well as irrigation pressures etc and so we're looking at specifically coupling the development of novel supply chains to secondary and tertiary sources of of biomass where you're actually sourcing from from waste from the food supply chain as well as looking at growing new Farming methods that are regenerative. So this goes into both agricultural practices, regenerative agriculture, as well as, for instance, seaweed farming that can actually be a net positive on sequestering carbon. And if done with a um, multitrophic aquaculture, basically integrating different species so that nutrients flow in, in, in closed loops, that can actually you can extract biomolecules from seaweed, for instance, for making materials in a way that's actually the whole system is being more productive because you're developing materials in that location. That kind of lens is necessary. If we just go with, you know, we just want to source biomass without understanding the system's implications there are risks of over extracting and undermining uh biodiversity and and the um and the ecosystem services that's that support us all so there's also uh an element of mindset shift that has to to take place when it comes to knowledge about materials and Right now we have a very closed view of, of material knowledge. And that's something that in order to create a massive shift in the market, I believe we have to open up our understanding and, and uh, concrete knowledge about material formulations and their properties to uh, in an open source fashion and that open open source has been shown in software as well as hardware to accelerate innovation and if we do that in the materials field we can get people collaborating from all over the world to accelerate and optimize materials for the market a lot faster and that doesn't mean that eventually there might be in the in the in in the value chain clear ways that ip is appropriate to then um, protect a certain material that's in concert with the production technology, etc., and then is commercialized. That's great. But the underlying layer, the fundamental understanding of how to make materials and their resulting properties in this biomaterial space, if that is made open source at a certain level, it will accelerate R&D for many players. And that's really fundamental to market transformation.
0: So, Alicia, like, it's good to hear about the ideas, but where are some of the bright spots emerging? Is this actually happening already today?
2: Yes, so the good news is there's a huge amount of not only uh, knowledge being produced in the research community, that Materium, what we're doing, is aggregating that. So it's very disaggregated at the moment, but there's an incredible bank of knowledge out there in how to make materials with this um, nature-inspired palette and life-friendly chemistry. What we're going to do is aggregate that and provide that as a resource that is easily navigable. The other aspect of, of really exciting work that's going on is actually taking these recipes and commercializing them. And you see popping up more and more companies that are providing a radically different material offering. So these are not bioplastics that have kind of in the fine print something regarding okay, they're not biodegradable or they actually have just a small small amount of bio in them. This is the kind of um opaque nature of bioplastics in today's market. What you're seeing are companies that are offering a really radical uh, uh, option. Like they're they're providing materials that are truly regenerative and use life-friendly chemistry. And that use bio-based building blocks from right in the localities and regions that they're actually um, located in. So, you know, for instance, not NotPly, you've got Biome, you've got Marinatex. These are companies that are in the UK, EcoVative, These are companies that just in the UK you can see. And then around the world, they're just popping up increasingly. And companies are also offering really, really... Um, important materials that are actually better than the current market alternatives. So Kuentech is looking at um, biodegradable packaging that is really impressive from a performance perspective. And and others are similarly playing with how can materials that are made from bio-based building blocks actually outperform commercial um, materials that currently um, hold sway in the market.
1: That was a really interesting conversation to hear, Seb. I think particularly about that kind of mindset shift of the ownership of knowledge and kind of how it's beyond this one group.
0: Yeah, I mean, Alicia's really taps into a whole range of themes. Like, how do we have regenerative materials? How do we empower and enable that with the latest technological capabilities? And then there's this thread around how important open source is. And there's two things about that. One is that they are open sourcing their knowledge they're making it possible for people to recreate what they've created locally in in their own context and it's also a great stimulus for innovation like recognizing that a lot more innovation needs to happen in this sphere and therefore actually it's it's within their interest in terms of their mission to open source what they're doing so that others can kind of build on it and develop it further and make the innovation happen faster
1: I think it's so exciting kind of looking at the circular economy and how much potential and sort of creativity and innovation is happening at every level from kind of the materials we're using to how people are actually using them as consumers. Um, We've got lots more kind of inspiration and examples on our website, haven't we?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So you can find those in the various topic pages, whether you're looking at the upstream innovation space under plastics or in the case studies section. And um, Alicia's a great source for examples, and she's a great source for some of the theories, principles, direction that might drive how we critique examples. And obviously, you know, it's worth saying, I, I think we picked up another the conversation a little bit, but you know, she's talking about the world of biomaterials, which is quite a complex and confusing world in terms of what this terminology means. So I definitely recommend her work and the work of Materium as a really good place to get educated on that and build up your knowledge about that and some of its potential.
1: And I think she's very good at articulating that in a way that we can all understand, because as you say, we don't all have PhDs in material science.
0: I mean, Pippa, when you say I don't have a PhD in science, like I might have equivalent level knowledge especially after the amount of time I've spent talking to Alicia
1: (laughs) well that's good good use of your time
0: well thank you so much for listening to this podcast it's brought to you by the Ellen McCarr Foundation where we develop and promote the idea of a circular economy engage key stakeholders to make it happen and try and mobilise systems solutions at scale now Pippa there's one favour that I know you want to ask of the audience
1: well I would absolutely love it if you enjoyed this episode to share it with people that you think might also be interested whether that's your colleagues or your friends or fellow students Uh, we've got loads and loads of episodes in our back catalogue and we've got way more to come so please like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this
0: and we'll be back next week
1: see you then